0: Welcome to This Academic Life, episode 28. This episode is sponsored by Degrider and its portfolio in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. For students and researchers in mathematics, Degrider's 2022 catalog is now available at thisacademiclife.org. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Hi, my name is Kim Michelle Lewis. I'm a Professor of Physics and Associate Dean of Research.
1: Hi,
2: I'm Panya Newell. I'm a Professor in Mechanical Engineering.
1: Hi, I'm Lucy Zhang. I'm a Professor of Mechanical Engineering. In the past couple of years, you might've heard a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI. It has become an ubiquitous part of academics. In many institutions, we observed an increasing presence of DEI, such as a required DEI statement from a candidate when they apply to a faculty position, similar to the research and teaching statements we have been requiring. Some institutions are also requiring a DEI statement to be part of their tenure and promotion packages. But what is the meaning of DEI? What are we trying to achieve? How are we putting this in the context of academia as a whole? We all have so many questions about where it came from and where it's going. We're so fortunate to have Mr. Matt Pinchinette with us today. Matt is the Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at the Gilderland Central School District in the Capital Region of Upstate New York. He's been appointed at this position since September of 2021 He's also an adjunct faculty at Clarkson University. I'm taking advantage of the fact that he's my neighbor and a good friend. He graciously said yes to our invitation and to talk to us about DEI.
3: Welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor and a privilege to be here with such esteemed academics. And I feel like this is one of the highlights of my day today and something that I'm looking forward to caring, not only with me through the rest of the week, but also bringing back to the students that I'm fortunate enough to work with as well. So thank you again so much for having me.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Matt. I know that you love your students. I have been hearing so many touching and good stories about you caring about your students that you have. Let's have you introduce yourself a little bit.
3: Yeah, so thank you. Uh, as you mentioned, I am the Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at gilderland central school district and i also an adjunct faculty member for clarkson university and their education program and both of those two are passions of mine that i feel very very grateful to be able to occupy both of those spaces i love the idea of supporting and giving back to the profession of education but i love even more the actionable steps that i'm able to take in order to support students in their journey going from the time they enter our school district and to the point of graduation and making sure that they know that they are valued and that their story not only matters, but it's one that deserves to be told and it's one that will be heard. So this is really a blending of both worlds and just kind of outside of this, I don't want to paint a picture as if I just sit in a vacuum of DEI or teaching and what that might look like. I'm a regular person. I love playing basketball. <laughs> Lucy, you know this. Hi, that's, that's one of my favorite pastimes. I'm not about playing and challenging students if I need to either try to boost my own ego, but that doesn't always work out for me. But, you know, I think that it's more to try to have some of that balance in life. And this is one of those things that really has been a highlight for me. So I was fortunate enough to teach history before this, and that also plays a large role in my work, but I'll, I'll circle back to that later on.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. So our topic of today is to learn about DEI. So I think many of us all have very different interpretation of these words. So perhaps you can share what, in your opinion, what they mean and what it means in different contexts
3: perhaps. So I wanna take DEI and break down each one of the different segments of it to address this. So we're gonna start off with diversity. Now, a lot of the times when folks hear the term diversity, I think that people are drawn to this idea of, okay, now this is just people trying to talk about systems of oppression and all the ways that they've been disadvantaged. And while those things are historically and factually accurate, that we do have marginalized communities, and that stems from issues surrounding race, gender, sexuality, national and ethnic origin, religion, and there are so many different facets of it. Really, to me, diversity is the core of our strength, and it's what has been the driving force behind all of the most amazing moments in not just american history but world history and what i mean by that diversity it comes from the strengths that you and i have they're different our backgrounds are different i could not be a professor of engineering if i wanted to and i think that that's okay and the fact that we have different skill sets that fact that we have different hermeneutics, different way of seeing the world different paths that we've walked, when we're able to bring those together, we're able to go so much further than if it was just one of us moving on our own. And I think that for us to be able to do this at its finest, that means tapping into the strengths that lie within marginalized communities. So it's not just about the systems of oppression, which are very real and which do need to be challenged and dismantled. It's about seeing what every single student in my context, every single student as well in your context and in the broader sense of life, what seeing what each individual brings to the table, because everyone has something that they can do in an excellent manner. And everyone has something worthwhile saying and everyone deserves to be heard in that. And so when we're able to factor in now our diversity of thought and diversity of ability, diversity, and, and that means you know physical ability, that also means our talents, whether that be with music or art or really any other medium, tapping into those and learning and listening to the lived experiences of others. When we look at equity, I wanna kind of bring up a cartoon that's very, very well circulated. Um, many folks have probably seen the one of the fence where there are people trying to watch a game. And there's one person who's already taller than the fence, someone who's eye-level defense the they can't see over it, and someone who's a step below that. And so equality is giving everyone a box. You're giving everyone the same exact resources so that they're saying, hey, we're treating everyone the same. And now you can't say that we're favoring one over the other. Well, the one person could already see over the fence and see the game. They didn't need that box. That's an unnecessary support. The person in the middle that's exactly what they needed and that support is something that's valuable for them it's helping them achieve what they can in what they you know have the capability to be able to achieve but for the other person that support isn't enough to get them to be able to see the game now they're just at eye level with the fence and still can't see above it equity in a basic sense is being able to give people what they need so this translates in the cartoon to the shortest person they would get two boxes and now they're able to see above the fence the person in the middle gets one box and they're able to see above the fence Another person already was able to. So what separates equity from equality, equality is using the same solution to try to get different outcomes. Whereas equity takes a look at, okay, well, what is it that folks need to be able to achieve what they are capable of and to be able to move past the barriers that have been put in their way? And I would argue that honestly, we need to take it a step past that and move towards justice because justice would be removing the fence. And that's really where I would like to move things. Even when we get to the point of equity, we are approaching what we need, but there are still inherent systemic problems. The system itself hasn't been fixed. Merely our approach to the system is now better. And for the final strand, inclusion, what that means to me, I mentioned that I was a history teacher before my current role, and I was fortunate enough to be a co-teacher. Now, I loved that so much, and I had the most amazing co-teacher in the world. She's a special ed certified teacher, and she is phenomenal in the classroom. In a lot of academic contexts, at least at the elementary and middle and secondary levels, translates to a least restrictive environment. I'll try not to use too many education buzzwords, but basically having parity with students who are identified and your gen ed population. And so for us with co-teaching, we had a blended classroom, and the idea is that We wanna give every student the ability to learn in the environment that is least restrictive for them, where they'll be able to have the most success. So that's kind of what inclusion looks like in teaching, at least at the secondary level.
2: I love your definitions too. Thank you so much for sharing it. You brought up a good point about justice and I'm part of an association called American Geophysical Union. And it was the first time that I heard the term JEDI. So it's basically justice, equity, diversity, inclusion. And I tried as different organizations that I'm involved with to bring attention to this justice part of it, but they all go with different versions of the EDI, DEI, and nobody cares about that JEDI part because JEDI is so cool. And I think the justice part is the part that you touched on and that I think that would make the society a better society. What are your thoughts on that, and have you heard anybody in your organizations moving towards not just having a different acronym, but just working towards justice as well?
3: Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up, because even with the different acronyms, I've had people internally, and again, because my position is new, this is the first year that Gilderland has had someone in this role, the semantics necessarily of what people will refer to me as are not the most important things for me. I've heard EDI, I've heard DEI, I've heard all of the different blends of things. What I care about is the work that we're doing. And I love that you highlighted, like, do we have folks in my district moving through that? And I would say yes. Our superintendent is someone who's expressed both publicly and even in conversations with me that this is something that is a commitment, not just from her, but really that's where the district is moving.
1: Matt, you mentioned that this is a new post in your school district, and your superintendent is very supportive of this initiative, very supportive of your program. So my question is, along with all these different systemic issues that you mentioned, why do you think the position is only happening now? Why didn't happen it before? And it's a systemic issue that has been there for hundreds of years, and why now? Why not later?
3: Yeah, that is the million dollar question right there. But I think the answer is embedded in the question, that the issues are systemic. And a large part of it is that there has been progression in terms of conversations with race. I'm gonna use this as a lens because I think that that's one of the ways that we might be able to unpack, because it's a very large thing and I wanna try to condense it. So we'll use race as a lens for this. Where maybe 20 years ago, people who felt that they were being very, very progressive would say things like, "I don't see color." In doing so, by not recognizing my color, by and I'm not saying that that needs to be the primary driver that in terms of like racism. By saying you don't see that I'm a black man, what you're doing is you're negating my lived experiences. Because as a black man, there are things that I've experienced that have shaped and molded the path that I've walked on in life that have shaped my experiences with people from a bunch of different spheres of influence and in positions of power and what that's done for shaping my worldview, that to understand me, you have to understand and not just accept, because I, I don't think tolerance is really what our goal is. It's embracing and understanding and learning. So to get to that place, you have to see who I am. What it means is a commitment and a visible commitment to learning and to continual work. And so I think that this is something that very well should have happened years ago. I know that as a student myself, I didn't go to Gilderland, but I would have vastly benefited from these initiatives. I needed these things to happen. And just because they didn't happen back then, I think is no reason for us to say that they shouldn't happen now or say, well, we were just fine before. Maybe you might've been from your lens, but there were children who were hurting and who were suffering daily who were not fine. So the district is willing to
1: give that commitment and put in the resources and this position to really launch all the different things that you're doing. But in most of the places that I know, this program or this initiative doesn't really exist. They mostly rely on faculty themselves to kind of organize and form some committees and try to figure things out but we have no guidance, we have no resources, and everybody is already stretched so thin with everything that we were already given tasks, right? So in terms of research, teaching, and service. So now that some of these committees were asked to, or faculty or instructors were asked to address DEI with absolutely no guidance, you know, I have seen some of these applications of faculty writing those DEI statements. They go from one end to the other. I mean, you don't see a particular direction. I don't even think anyone knows what to expect, but they had to write it, right? So what are we doing? I mean, like, I don't think we're at the right, we're not trained. We're, I don't think we're at the right position to do any of this.
3: Yeah. So to that I am going to completely agree with you. And that might sound like weird like wait what? No, but like this is literally what you do. Shouldn't you want this to be uh well, the same way that CPR is literally a life-saving skill, but people are trained in how to do it. You don't just say to people, okay, you know, someone walking down the street, I expect you to know this. And even though this is something as seemingly basic as well everyone's heard of cpr before and like it's something that is spread in mass media i mean there's a show called the good doctor people you know watch gray's anatomy like you should probably know how to do that well it doesn't work that way in real life and i think about like the amount of work and you hit something that's right on the head because even last year i myself and other colleagues spent so much time but we also still were teachers And and my colleagues, uh, a lot of them are still teachers and are doing so much other work. I think about this even in my role. Realistically, it's too much for one person to accomplish. And so this is where trying to find people to help shoulder the load makes things a little bit more accessible, but the training has to be something that goes in. And we can't go in with assumptions that folks know not even just the language to enter the conversation but what to do when you're having it so that's something that even just with working with different administrators part of it has been trying to do trainings that's something that like i have engaged in with staff at a bunch of different levels gone into faculty meetings and had time i made it very clear even when i was interviewing for this position and after having it and at faculty meetings, that my primary commitment is to the students and that's something that i always want to be there but I also need to be there for teachers. And so when they need that support, I want to make it clear that I'm a resource for them to be able to, to tap into. And so I think when this work is done best, it's when it's done well. And so for it to be done well, we have to train folks. And we have to explain what this means. And we have to go into things like the difference between equity and equality. If you want it to be done well, then you need to equip people with the resources to be able to do that work. Matt,
2: thank you. I like that how you said that we all need to be trained. i guessing probably Lucy and Kim experience the same thing in most of these committees people they look around and they see who looks different and they say oh you should be part of this committee women people of color and they form this and they assume that you all know or we all know what EDI DI Jedi all of this they mean right and no training whatsoever and that's to me that's that's the wrong and everybody's definition seems different of just a simple word of diversity. Everybody's having different definition of diversity in their mind. And then when you put all of them together, they don't even agree on, you know, the definition of one term in there. And then now we are expected to change the whole culture of the department or the university or the college. And I think the training part is the missing part because, I mean, I don't know anything might be diverse, but that doesn't mean that I can change the culture or help with other communities. I thought that it was a good point that you mentioned about the training.
0: I agree. Going back to something Lucy said, when people interview and they have to prepare these statements about DEI, and it goes from one extreme to the next. I totally agree about the training and what my other colleagues said, but how much of this is a learned behavior? How much of this is passion and compassion and a part of the lived experience? So what do you think about that versus the training? So when you compare lived experience with training, you'll find that I think that the people who have the lived experience are why people look around and say, oh, let's ask Kim to answer this question. Right, Because they have that lived experience, which is very important, but we also don't speak for the entire community as well. so I just wanted to know how do you balance training and that lived a learned behavior
3: i love I love that you just said that that was actually where I was going to go next, because I think part of the thing that goes unnoticed and when you know just addressing that, hey, looking around the room and people go to of color they go to women they go to just marginalized communities to do the learning part of this is because that training aspect a lot of that training is our lived experiences so for me understanding how to navigate the world as a black man i didn't sit down in a lecture hall to learn that i didn't have to learn that from a book i learned that from my interactions with my peers from the time i was four years old and to see different people who have told me all sorts of disparaging remarks to have heard racial slurs and to see what that does to my psyche, to see how I feel when I've heard people use that to my siblings and my family, and the helplessness and the rage and the frustration and the sadness that it can overtake. I felt that feeling of panic in moments when things can be a very, very tense situation. And I know that sometimes that I am judged and looked at first as a Black person before I'm looked at as a human being. And so we have those lived experiences and that's more training than we could get from a session. But I think that part of it, that training, it it is absolutely something that people need to seek out. I think it's a twofold thing. So if we look at it from the system level, to change the system, our organizations cannot, it's not a reasonable thing to say, well, just change because now it is a more, we're more socially conscious and aware, even though, to be honest, I find it frustrating sometimes I'm like we're just getting aware now but I digress but I think that these systems for the organization to say that they want to change this is where you need to invest in the same level of seriousness that we view a need such as hunger or shelter that's the need that we have to view this as because I think some people don't understand the seriousness of this to someone who's in a marginalized community to students who are at an increased risk of suicide simply for their sexuality their gender for their race we need to understand that this is as much a matter of life and death this is not a convenience this is not a band-aid that we're sticking on something and this all circles back to what i opened with where knowing the stories of people's where some of that transformative personal stuff happens so for us to truly see an impactful situation organizations absolutely need to do training and that training is not going to be a one-off it can't work as a one-off it needs to work as a recurring thing that's updated as we learn and grow more but then also individuals need to put in that work because as the system changes, individuals are what comprise the system. So those individuals need to be able to shift as well so that we're able to move forward in the manner that folks need us to.
1: I think convincing many individuals is probably the hardest part. Some automatically understand the essence or the importance of this. Some simply don't care because. They never experienced anything. They can't comprehend the existence of this DI movement. They cannot. They say, this is just one extra thing that people are throwing onto me on top of my other responsibilities. I feel the system itself or the institutions themselves, that part of training needs to be somewhat mandatory (laughs) at some level, just so that they start to at least understand the basic concepts, before they even appreciate
0: the whole movement or process.
3: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. Absolutely. Yes.
0: And I also think that faculty, is, is they're different creatures, right? They don't like to be told what to do. That's why we become faculty members, because we have that academic freedom. So you almost have to pretend to be a psychologist and use reverse psychology. And instead of forcing them air quotes to go to training you represent those thoughts in a faculty meeting i do it all the time some people say oh you called out so and so but if you do it in a manner where they don't feel like you're calling them out then you can have those discussions in faculty meeting like hey why are you guys thinking about it this way this student really could be having this issue and then it's not in the training, so to speak, where you're checking a box, oh, yes, I did that for this academic year, you're really using the platform you're already in, a faculty meeting, uh, you know, deans meeting, whatever, to have that discussion. So I think we need the training, but we also need to make sure that we know who are the target audience and how they think, because faculty all overworked, we all overworked, but this, like Matt's saying, this is something that we need. So we need to figure out a way to present that need to them where it's not a burdensome. And I think as faculty members, we have that platform to do that.
3: I'm really happy you said that. One of the things that has been my goal is to make it very clear to folks that DEI, or JEDI, or EDI, or whatever you want to call it, it's not a weapon, that it's something that enhances what we do. And I think that, at least at the secondary level, To be an effective teacher of teenagers to be a good one you have to understand them as people and you have to have connections i know that there is a difference when you get to higher education but i think that there is some level of that that still remains kind of innately true and that even if it doesn't mean that you are you know hey i'm best friends and i'm going you know golfing with my students what it does mean though is if you understand what your students are bringing into the classroom then you are better able to help them meet their academic goals because you are then able to tailor things.
2: Also, Matt, I was thinking that one thing that it's missing in this space is a genuine love, because if we really love one another in a genuine way, we will be able to sit and talk and have an honest discussion and understand each other. And I feel, that's missing from most of these EDI committees. It's more of a check mark for institutions. They just wanna say, we have this, this is in place, but it's not, maybe my understanding is wrong, but I feel that component of love is missing because if I really, really care about this, if I really, really love being involved with the EDI, I would practice it in whether I'm in that committee or I'm outside in my day-to-day life whether i'm talking with my other colleagues or if i'm in a grocery store and i think that the institutions like academic institution they should teach us because we are teaching next generations right we are teaching them how to become critical thinkers but that love part is the missing part because i think it's like another committee doing other type of tasks But that love part, it's not important in when we are hiring faculty, right? It doesn't play much of a role, but in the EDI, I think it's very, very crucial aspect of it.
1: So Matt, you've at this position now for about six months or so. What are the actual activities that you have implemented within the school district? And assuming that you've already done some, how do you measure the effectiveness of these activities in the short term or long term? Because, I mean, we are all engineers and scientists here. We love to be able to validate our hypothesis or models. So I wanted to know a little bit more about, you know, these specifics so that perhaps we can translate those into our universities. So
3: today marks 106 days in this position, and that went by very fast. And it seems like so much time, but also I think about it, and that's not even half of a year. We we don't have a baby being now, six months at that point. And so in that time, one of the logs I have, I've divided it into four different categories. So direct student interventions, workshops with teachers, workshops with the administrators, and then community partnerships and stuff like that. So I'm going to say for each thing at least, and honestly, there are some of them it might even be double if I counted all the smaller things. So there have been over 128 different direct student interventions at this point, whether that's meeting with students, hearing their experiences, workshopping things with them, doing lessons in classrooms, um, and I'll go to some of those specific things of what that might look like. Over 78 different things with the community, whether that's like public meetings and doing events, partnerships with different folks, trying to bring them into our schools to work with our kids. Right now we're doing one-on-one with a teacher who's looking for help, one-on-one with students who are looking for help, to training level things or to doing workshops. We have regular PD for administrators and doing workshops with those surrounding a range of different topics. So there's been a lot of different things and one of the systems that I've used to measure them, obviously my log is more of a qualitative kind of thing. So being a liberal arts person and historian, my quantitative stuff, I'm like, ah, the numbers are just the numbers. It's fine. It's fine. I just want like everyone to smile and feel good. But one of the ways that I measured, I even asked that in my interview, I was like, okay, so what would we see as being like, you know, my KPIs? How do we know that I'm doing a good job? For me, it's in the fact that people feel safe. So it sounds like it's a small thing, and it might even sound alarming, like, hold on, how have there been over a hundred things that have happened at this point that you're meeting with and working with students about? Well, part of it is that these things aren't new. This means that over a hundred different times, students have, across the district, which has thousands of students, 4,800, they now have an outlet and a place where they feel safe and to go to. So to me, the fact that students have come and it's consistently gone, and not only consistently, it's actually increased. That to me means it's working. I think about what's happening in elementary classrooms. And again, part of this is going to be a long term thing. I'm hoping by the time that they leave this district, that when they go to their institutions of higher learning or their the workplace, that they'll carry these lessons and that we'll see it reflected in our community moving forward.
1: Wow, that's really nice. I think all of us and all of our institutions and all the other institutions that we know of can benefit so much from your expertise and your experience. Uh, well, well uh, Matt, this is so nice. This is such a great conversation. I think all of us had learned a lot today, and we hope DEI would continue to be one of the key points, not just simply being there, but actually do great things to strengthen the communities that we are in.
3: Thank you so much for your time. I mentioned it at the beginning, but I really do mean it. It's been a joy and a privilege and an honor to be able to spend some time with such brilliant women. And so thank you for hearing from me.
0: Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. This episode is sponsored by DeGreiter and its portfolio in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. For students and researchers in mathematics, The Grider's 2022 catalog is now available at thisacademiclife.org. You can follow us on Facebook and listen to our latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Join us next time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of This Academic Life.